almost anyone who loves tennis and follows the men's tour on television has over the last few years had what might be termed Federer moments. These are times as you watch the young Swiss play when the jaw drops and eyes protrude and sounds are made that bring spouses in from other rooms to see if you're okay. The moments are more intense if you've played enough tennis to understand the impossibility of what you just saw him do. We've all got our examples. Here's one. It's the finals of the 2005 U.S. Open. Federer serving to Andre Agassi early in the fourth set. There's a medium-long exchange of ground strokes, one with the distinctive butterfly shape of today's power baseline game. Federer and Agassi yanking each other from side to side, each trying to set up the baseline winner. Until suddenly, Agassi hits a hard, heavy cross-court backhand and pulls Federer way out wide to his ad side. And Federer gets to it, but slices the stretch backhand short, a couple feet past the service line, which of course is the sort of thing Agassi dines out on. And as Federer's scrambling to reverse and get back to center, Agassi's moving in to take the short ball on the rise. And he smacks it hard, right back into the same ad corner, trying to wrong foot Federer. Which in fact he does. Federer's still near the corner, but running toward the center line. And the ball's heading to a point behind him now, where he just was. And there's no time to turn his body around. Agassi is following the shot in to the net at an angle from the backhand side. And what Federer now does is somehow instantly reverse thrust and sort of skip backward three or four steps, impossibly fast, to hit a forehand out of his backhand corner, all his weight moving backward. And the forehand is a top spin screamer down the line, past Agassi at net, who lunges for it past him, and it flies straight down the sideline, and lands exactly in the deuce corner of Agassi's side. A winner. Federer's still dancing backwards as it lands, and there's that familiar little second of shock silence from the New York crowd before it erupts, and John McEnroe, with his color man's headset on TV, says, mostly to himself it sounds like, how do you hit a winner from that position? And he's right, given Agassi's position and world-class quickness. Federer had to send that ball down a two-inch pipe of space in order to pass it, which he did, moving backwards, with no setup time and none of his weight behind the shot. It was impossible. It was like something out of the Matrix. I don't know what all sounds were involved, but my spouse says she hurried in and there was popcorn all over the couch and I was down on one knee and my eyeballs looked like novelty shop eyeballs. Anyway, that's one example of a Federer moment and that was merely on TV. And the truth is that TV tennis is to live tennis pretty much as video porn is to the felt reality of human love.
Roger Federer is showing that the speed and strength of today's pro game are merely its skeleton, not its flesh. He has figuratively and literally re-embodied men's tennis. And for the first time in years, the game's future is unpredictable. You should have seen on the grounds outside courts the variegated ballet that was this year's junior Wimbledon. Drop volleys, mixed spins, off-speed serves, gambits plan three shots ahead, all as well as the standard issue grunts and booming balls. Whether anything like a nascent Federer was here among these juniors can't be known, of course. Genius is not replicable. Inspiration, though, is contagious and multiform. And even just to see, close up, power and aggression made vulnerable to beauty is to feel inspired and, in a fleeting, mortal way, reconciled. From the David Foster Wallace essay, Federer, Both Flesh and Not, originally published on August 20th, 2006. I guess there was a, cer a certain process that started at the beginning of the summer, um, you know, where you tried to go to the next level in training and I could feel it was getting difficult. So obviously at that point I knew any hiccup, any setback for that matter was going to be the one potentially. So that you're going to have harder moments or the way you push too hard and you have to pull back a little bit, that's normal in rehab because you're always going to stay in that corridor doing enough but not too much and uh, I actually like that challenge because I really have to be in tune with my body and uh, with my team of understanding how far can I go and um, I just then I think over the course of a few weeks and months there um, we just have to really be careful and almost to a certain level too careful and then um, I guess I was also getting more tired as you have to put in more effort into it um, to be able to sort of believe that it was going to turn around, you start getting quite pessimistic and then I got a scam back which also wasn't uh, what I wanted to be and um, at some point you sit down and go, okay, well, this is, we're at an intersection here uh, at a crossroad and you have to take a turn. It is brutal. Um, I think tennis is a tough sport to, to bounce back into because you have to be able to play long matches, five matches in a row, um, every week, different continents, different surfaces no substitute for you so um, obviously mentally you need to know you have to be able to get all the way back there and it's hard but uh, um, and then maybe the hardest part after that one point of course you're sad in the very moment when you realize okay this is the end but uh, I sort of ignored it for a little bit almost because I went on vacation and just said okay this is it and this moment came shortly after I was at Wimbledon when I still actually truly believed uh, there was going to be a chance for me to come back uh, next year what capacity I didn't know but you know I, I thought it might be possible and then on vacation I, funny enough I didn't speak to anybody about it other than my team my, my, my parents Mirko we knew uh, other than that nobody really knew and it was perfect like this didn't talk about it we just hang with friends and other families and it was wonderful and um, I only then at one point when I returned from vacation I started to really discuss the details of okay 
where, when, how, what. This, honestly, this period was quite stressful, getting the letter right, the wording right, and then using words like bittersweet. Um, and the bitterness is obviously, in a, in a, you always want to play forever. You know, I love being out on court. I love being playing against the guys and um, traveling. You know, I never really felt it was that hard for me to do. Um, love winning, learn from losing. It was all perfect. You know, I, I love my career um, from every angle. And that's um, the bitter part. The sweet part was that um, I know everybody has to do it at one point. Everybody has to leave the game, and it's been a, a great, great journey. And for that, I'm really grateful. So, Matt, Roger Federer has decided to hang him up. I'm feeling a bit sad about it. How, how about yourself? I'm okay. I'm, I'm doing well, considering the news. Um, it's something I like, care way more than, about than the Queen's death. Yeah, but right. That, but that's not saying too much, because, <laughs> because I... Um, as a socialist, of course, the Queen's death is like, you know, there's all this pomp and ceremony around the Queen. It's ridiculous, I think. There's no, no, no tears for me on that front. Yeah, I could see that. But a few for Roger. I, a few for Roger. Like, I do care care about Roger. And it's just been, yeah, the way it's happened is a bit anticlimactic, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's a bit of a shame, but it it sounds like his his knees have been giving him problems again. And uh, the reports a, a week or two ago, which I had missed, were that you know there there was a chance he might not even be able to play Labor Cup. So I think I'm hope you know certainly I think everybody who's a tennis fan um, is hoping that he'll he'll be able to get out there and and give it a proper go, but. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting comparing him to the Queen because he almost fills that he almost feels like that kind of symbol in tennis for me personally. My tennis life, my tennis fan fandom in my adulthood. You know, he's the he's been the constant. You know, he's been the guy who's always been there. He was it was his play, and you know, more specifically the the David Foster Wallace piece about him that kind of got me interested in the sport again and um you know it it is it i mean like he hasn't played in well over a year on the tour you know i think i think there's just just this aspect of his his career where you think like well anything is possible if you can just get healthy and get back out there and it seems like at the end of the day you know his mortality has caught up to him and his body is not not able to to take it anymore i think if it, if it was he would he would continue to play like he there's there's no part of him that wants to to give it up but i think the easy comparison is with serena who you know obviously just retired and she got that that send off that that like fitting final run and yeah uh, yeah it feels different for roger and it's a bit of a shame yeah, it feels like, you know, Serena's even hinted that she might not be fully done yet. Uh, and that seems possible, the way she played and her general health, you know, yeah. and injuries is a bit better than Rogers, I think. So 
it really does feel like the end for Roger. I mean, yeah. it definitely is. It definitely is now. And we, yeah, Alex predicted that he wasn't wasn't going to come back, even yeah, though he officially he'd said, "I'm going to have this operation to try and give myself one last shot of playing competitively again." And I bought that. I was like, "Oh, that'd be really good if he could, you know, have one last run at a slam." Yeah. Uh, one, one final Wimbledon. You know, he had he had committed to playing at the Swiss indoors. You know, it felt like all right. He can he could summon the the energy, get fit enough to to get out there again. It's it's yeah. too bad he's not just you know committing to a doubles career. I think that was that was our other proposition for yeah. For Raj, <laughs> that is know. a really good idea. If only he would see it our way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he would he would feel like it was a step down. But if he looked at it differently, he could see that he would be elevating the sport in this new way. Imagine Roger Federer throughout his forties dominating the double circuit you know yes it would be so good it would raise doubles profile it would it would raise the profile of the sport more generally it would be like another amazing chapter to his career let's call al and get his perspective on this hey hey there al it's it's matt here um so Dave and I were thinking Roger Federer should concentrate on doubles for the, you know, for the next 10 years and make a career in doubles. If he were to do this, who would be his ideal doubles partner? That's our question to you. Hope you're well. See you later. Roger Federer playing doubles. Great idea. Love the idea. And I think he should do it. I think he would obviously kill it if he moved into that 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 phase of his tennis career. As for who should be his doubles partner, well, I am a big fan of the right-handed and left-handed combo in a doubles team, and I'm obviously a big fan of the one-handed backhand. So I think that he should partner with Denis Shapovalov because Dennis has, plays a bit of doubles, has had a bit of success. He plays with Rohan Bapana, who is a bit older. So I think he, and I think generally he benefits from being around someone a bit older and a bit more experienced. Oh, yeah, I don't know. He's just, you know, he's still, he's reining it in a bit, Dennis, but I still think he really shines when he's got someone around him sort of reining him in a little bit and, and bringing some discipline to the table. And there's no one better at that than Roger. So them on a doubles team with a right-handed, left-handed combo, which I think is a very, very powerful thing in doubles. Um, the Bryan brothers are left-handed, right-handed combo, right? And obviously that worked for them. I think it's just really good to have your forehands on the outside of the court. Two forehands on the outside of the court is just a strong, a very strong position. And then the back, the backhand down the middle. There's, you know, there's not going to get a better backhand, one-handed backhand than Roger Federer. So that covering the middle of the court, you're you're in safe hands there. I think that's a very powerful combination. I would love it to happen. Otherwise, I think when Nadal retires from singles, they should do it. <laughs> They've still got the left-handed, right-handed combination. 
and it would just be hilarious to see Roger and Rafa transition from dominating singles to then just dominating the doubles circuit and taking all the doubles slams for the next five years or something and just frustrating all those career doubles players uh, and just watch them have a fun out on the court. That would be great. Um, you know, like, I randomly, I was scrolling through the rankings, as I sometimes do, like, going up to 1,000 in the rankings, and I found, I was looking for, like, players that were still on the ranking list, but, um, really, you know, low down, but had been quite high. Mm. Because usually what happens if you're a top 100 player, like, you're, you just kind of, you retire, and then in a year you're gone yeah you're not really grinding on on the on the challengers or you know just to get some points and hang around who who did you find while you were scrolling down the list um i found this um japanese player because he's kind of this uh he he kind of is is doing what federer what we say federer could do huh k nishikori is uh currently ranked 740 in the world that's interesting. How does he have 25 points? Did he retire? Uh, I don't think so. It's funny how you forget about people so quickly. You know, I was I was reading this article about um, the players who were at the, like, I think it was the 2017 Next Gen Finals, you know, it included Medvedev and Rublev and Hachinov. And um, there were a couple guys in there. I mean, Yan Chung, the Korean man who went to the semifinals of the Australian Open, beat Novak Djokovic, mm. and has just basically fallen off the face of the earth. And then uh, Jared Donaldson, the American who uh, seemed promising. You know, he didn't seem like a contender, a slam contender, but, you know, he was headed to the, the top 30, the top 20 level player, had some really good matches. And he's just he's just been injured since, like, 2019 or something. You know, some some of these guys they get hurt and it just it's the end and they vanish from our memory. Mm. Is it Sugita Yuichi? No, it's not. Um, (laughs) God, he's I I I had him. I'd found him. Okay, so you're saying he's a player who like has decided to lean into doubles. Well, he he's forty, he's almost forty-five. He's forty-four point something. He's still got a reasonably high doubles ranking, like maybe three hundred or something like that. He he'd won some Japanese titles. He'd never never been in the top one hundred in either singles or doubles. Mm, okay. But he just but he just keeps playing. On the Challenger and ITF circuit. There's a man, uh, 693 in the world, who plays for Japan named Trotter James Kent. It's not a, not a very traditional Japanese name. <laughs> no, I think that's some more of a post-Meiji restoration name. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway. Um, Poor old Raj. Uh, you know, definitely ups the profile of the Labor Cup. I'm suddenly 
much more interested to watch that. Well, that's that's it. That's that's what we've got. Yeah, that's that's what we've got left. So Carlos Alcaraz won the U.S. Open men's title, and uh, it was a pretty amazing run. And you know, played one of the one of the great matches I've ever seen against Yannick Sinner in the quarters, five sets, high quality throughout, like finishing almost at three in the morning in New York. And you know, the, the commentators were saying a bunch that, um, you know, he he apparently like when growing up and kind of developing his game, he chose to pattern his game more on Roger than on Rafa. Everybody just immediately goes to the Rafa comparison because he's Spanish and he's strong. Um, but, uh, actually Roger was more his, uh, his childhood idol. And you could see some of that, like the attacking game in, uh, in Alcaraz's style. I mean, I think Alcaraz kind of does a little bit of everything well, you know, and he's got that Rafa doggedness, if not the the Rafa, like, OCD, like, kind of, you know. Like, like, I feel like Alcaraz will show you that he's frustrated for a few minutes, and he just seems to have the, like, ultimate short-term memory that you need to be a great athlete, and he just puts it behind him and keeps going. Um but anyway, yeah, he's, he's got a little bit of Roger in him, and I think there's something fitting, like it's almost like a passing of the torch with, with Roger retiring and, and Alcaraz ascending to, to world number one and winning his first slam. Mm. Yeah, um, Alcaraz, the Alcaraz-Federer um, um, comparison it shocked me as well. I, I didn't realize he'd, he'd modeled his game on, um, on Federer. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, but he does play, play really, um, he does play a beautiful brand of game. He doesn't have the, the one hand backhand, of course. Yeah. Um, he's good at the net though, right? He is good at the he's, net. He's really good at the net. Yeah. He's got great touch. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't have the Roger grace, you know, the the balletic movement. Instead, mm-hmm. like what Alcaraz seems to have is this like kind of freaky superhero explosiveness. Like <laughs> his his ability to to like get off the mark. You know, it, it seemed like there was a there was a, a smash. I, I can't remember what match it was, but he he was at net and he somebody tried to lob him and he had to get up to to smash the ball and, and hit a winner. And he didn't crouch, you know, like he just left the ground. <laughs> it's, and it's like that's it's like there's something in how finely tuned he is and how quickly he can change directions that enables him to get to all these balls and it's that first first step that burst that is uh that feels like something we haven't really seen before entirely yeah he's he's incredible his speed his explosiveness god it's and when in that match you mentioned with Sina cuz Sina was also very explosive and very athletic in that game. So you have two players, peak athleticism, just um, going for it. And I, 
And he never got tired. Like after that match, he played another big semi and a and a four set. Uh, was it five sets in the semi? As five well? sets in the semi against TFO. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's right against TFO, yeah. which was an another awesome match. Yeah. That TFO really made that a um, a match worthy of a final, and he gave the um, broken American crowd something to really cheer about. Yeah, um, even even my brother like texted me during the the TFO Alcaraz match. He had uh he doesn't watch really. I think, you know, this is this is the impact of like a you know, a young American, you know, going on a deep run at the US Open, like it got people watching who maybe wouldn't have otherwise and a lot of people who maybe didn't know who Alcaraz was, you know, and and my brother Noah, you know, he kind of he was obviously pulling for TFO. I was as well. You know, he, he's, he's willing to get on there. I mean, and TFO is such a, such an incredible personality. There's so much warmth and joy and energy in, in the way he plays. And, um, and he played terrific throughout the tournament. I mean, he beat Rafa, which, uh, you know, uh, which I predicted, um, but, uh, (laughs) I very cautiously predicted, I predicted, and then I kind of like said yeah i don't really think i believe it and maybe somebody will stop him but yeah tfo actually was able to get rafa at a slam and he, he was the first american to beat one of the big th- well no to beat rafa at a slam since james blake in 2005 or something it's wow it's like it's insane and that would have been when rafa you know, was like not at a, you know just kind of a new player and james blake would have been at his uh, peak at his peak yeah yeah and rafa wasn't probably that good on hard courts yet you know um yeah the, the history of american men beating any of the big three is very very thin so it felt like this big moment and yeah and he followed it up you know he got through rublev he pushed alcaraz to the limit i mean he saved match point on this unbelievable you know on this unbelievable point where he like he hit a let core, the ball stayed in, Alcaraz jumped on it. It seemed like TFO was dead, and he hits this insane like drop volley. And the ball just dies, and that, TFO's acting like like he just dodged a bullet, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, manages to push it to a fifth set. TFO won all eight tie breaks he played at the U.S. Open, which is a record. Um, wow. So, so anyway. The point being that my, you know, that this is an opportunity for new fans to get pulled in, and so for my brother it was TFO who pulled him in. But then he's like, this kid Alcaraz, like he warmed to him. And after that match when TFO lost, my brother was like, yeah, I'm done with tennis again. I was like, yeah, but this, <laughs> but this, but this kid Alcaraz is pretty amazing, right? And he's he's like a good he's like a good dude. He's like he's very, you know, sports person like. He's very you know like he's gracious. He's, he seems like a like he seems to enjoy what he's doing also like you see him smile you know there there are these moments where both him and TFO seem to be like you know just had these big grins on their face because of how ridiculous the points were and I feel like that's missing from a lot of people on the tour for whom it's like very serious business um, so anyway my brother ended up watching the final and was uh, you know he texted me to tell me that he was moved almost to tears by alcaraz you know running up to his box and embracing mm-hmm. his you know his his team and his family 
and he called Juan Carlos Ferrero his uh, his second dad. Yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah, it seems yeah, like a pretty special relationship there. His second dad, the mosquito. Was he the mosquito? <laughs> yeah, he is the mosquito. Yeah. Last time I thought he was the cockroach, but that was wrong. He, he was the mosquito. Who's the cockroach? Uh, that was what we decided Pablo Carreño Busta was. Okay. <laughs> Hard to kill. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mosquito, the also mos hard to kill, but a little bit of a different connotation. Yeah. Won't go away. Very annoying. Yes. Annoying. Buzzing. Fast. Um, I never saw Juan Carlos play. He's from that, that period of time when I was not paying any attention in the late 90s, early, early aughts. Yeah. So. so your dark period. My dark period, yeah. When I was lost. But now you have returned. <laughs> That's right. Found my found my way. So what about the women? You know, uh, Sviantek won again. She beat Ons Jabur in the final, Aww. which was pretty heartbreaking for me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. How do you feel about it? Well, I wanted Ons Jabur to win. Um. And uh, that's all. Yeah, that's that's it was sad, but yeah. it was a great run for her, for her to make the final. Yeah, nobody was picking her. She doesn't have like like hard courts are her least successful surface historically. She's a she's best on grass and clay, the natural surfaces. Yes, but, but um, yeah. Yeah, she's that means, and so she's firmly entrenched as the number two in the world now. Yeah, yep two so. two slam finals in a row, and she didn't even get points for the Wimbledon final. So she's kind of she's right there at the top. You know, it definitely feels like there's cause to believe she'll she'll get there. Um, and she I lost think, in the yeah. first round of the French Open unexpectedly. Yeah, that's right. She did. Yeah. So she has very few points from the French. So yeah, and her consistency and her her level uh, have been seemingly improving. And but you know the thing about Sviantek is that she she really didn't play to her best level throughout the tournament. She kind of did in the final. She has this creepy stat where she's like she's now won eight finals in a row without dropping a set, eight or nine. Let's call Al again and get his take on Iga. Hey there, Al. Um, I was wondering if uh, you could share some of your thoughts on Iga Sviantek's perceived gamesmanship during the U.S. Open and in general. And uh, I was hoping that you wouldn't hold back, you know, kind of let us know the depth of your emotion on this topic. That would be much appreciated. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. So, Iga and her gamesmanship. I think it's a thing. I know she was doing it in the final. And the two main things that she does 
well, the t- the main thing that she does often um, is that when the opponent is getting ready to serve, if there's some kind of disruption in the crowd, maybe there is. I think that often, you know, there's a bit of noise or whatever. But, I, you know, she'll put her racket up before the, the opponent even starts their service motion. She'll, she'll put her racket up. And then I think the disturbance, whatever it is, the sound, the noise, people moving or whatever, that's settled generally by the time the, the player has actually started their service motion. But because Iga has has been disturbed by it, she's put her racket up, she just she could just put it down and it would be fine, move on and let the player serve and the disturbances pass before any actual tennis has started. But she purposefully keeps her racket up until the player starts their service motion and they do that last glance up just before they toss the ball and they see her with their ball, with her racket up and then they have to stop. And then immediately, as soon as they see uh, the opponent sees Iga and stops their service motion, Iga just puts her racket down and she's ready to go. All of a sudden... Magically, every single time, the disturbance has stopped right at that moment, always. And she does it quite often. You know, once or twice, that's whatever. But she does this quite often. And it's very, very often on when she has break point or if she's like love 30 up or something like that, when there's, when there's, she can break. There's, the, the break is within her grasp and she really does whatever she can to get that break. And, and this, I think it's gamesmanship, comes into it way more than I like. It's just a very obvious thing. You know, Rafa does it sometimes, the same thing, holding the racket up and stopping the thing. But that happens very rarely compared to Iga. I've seen her do it a lot. And it's it's just, I don't love it. Um I don't love it. I think it's a a bit of a tick that she, w- I would love to see her get out of her game. Okay, so the other piece of gamesmanship that she did in the final, which I also didn't love, was when Ons Jabeur was serving and Iga had break point which was also match point and championship point, she went and changed her racket at that moment. And I think that is really poor form, both just in a sportsmanship type of way, but also I think in a like tennis rules kind of way. I'm pretty sure that's not on. Like you can change your racket if it breaks, and you need to replace your equipment or whatever. You know when your shoelaces break from sliding on hard court and the laces snap or whatever, you can go and change them. But And they change the rackets when there's new balls. But changing your racket in the middle of a game, in the middle of any game, is really not on. Even if it's your own service game. Even if it's your own service game in a non-consequential game, changing your racket in the middle of that is not on. And then changing your racket in the middle of your opponent's service game, even when it's a non-consequential really game in the middle of a match, is not on. But changing your racket in the middle of your opponent's service game when it's break point, when you have break point 
and it's match point and it's a Grand Slam championship point. I think that was really, really poor form. Like, I've heard that she was thinking, like, she said she was thinking about doing it for a while during the mat, during the later end of the match. She wanted to change attention or whatever, and she just didn't, couldn't, didn't really know when the moment was to do it. But to pick the match point to do it, I just, maybe in isolation, I would, I wouldn't really get my back up so much about it but it's in combination with this other thing she did which i just mentioned the the whole holding your racket up and disrupting your opponent's serve which she does quite often those two things in concert just i don't i'm a bit off ego after that to be honest i i just seen it too many times especially the holding the racket up thing, thing up to to disrupt the opponent's serve it's it's yeah it just left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. I was, you know, I've been a bit, a really big eager fan, and we, we all, all three of us, when saw her right, the Australian Open was it, twenty twenty, just as she was really coming up, and we're all really excited about her. I was anyway. I can't speak for you guys, but I, I yeah, I was, I was really excited about her, and then when she started winning slams and just went on these crazy runs, I was like, oh man, it's cool, but it's over for me. Me and eager, the love story between me and eager is. Is over. Like I was trying to figure out why I don't, I just can't seem to embrace Shviantek. I can't get excited about her. And I, you know, it's, mm. it's always a little bit about personality, but I think the fact that she just doesn't seem to play matches that are very exciting because she's often dominating people um, is part of the problem. You know, like Alcaraz, it took me a minute to warm to Alcaraz, but like the last four matches he played at this U S open were excellent. You know, going back to Chilich in the round of 16 and the final against Rude was really, was pretty tight as well. Um, you know, it just like, you know, it's like why I was so taken with uh, Andreescu a few years back. It felt like she was always in these dramatic close matches, you know, and she would always, if she was down, she would always fight back. And I, I feel that from Alcaraz and Sviantec, it's just like, if she finds her gear, she she gets to that top level, it's just hard for anybody to kind of hang with her right but um Jabir almost did like it was pretty close in the tie break right in that second set yeah i mean the tie break i think she kind of lost going away but she did she clawed back i think she was down a break twice in the second set and yeah she managed to, to climb back into that match and yeah it's 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 kind of unfortunate that it didn't go to a third because i think it could have grown into a really classic match if it had managed to get there. But I don't like to harp on the three set, five set thing, but it does feel a little shit that like the longest women's match is only as long as the shortest men's match. Obviously a close three setter could be had on either tour and it would be roughly equivalent, but, um, yeah, it just, and when it comes to the final, Sviantek almost won that match in an hour. You know, she was she was up a break, I think it was like 4-2 in the third, I'm sorry, in the second, and she had opportunities to break again. And yeah, it could have been over like that. And, you know, in comparison with these epic four or five hour men's matches, it just, just doesn't feel quite the same. Feels unjust. Yeah, well, I suppose... 
four or five hours, you have a lot more time to go through different emotions to like create stories. Yeah. It's almost like how, how fast can we think? How quickly can we create those stories? Like we're used to having five hours to create a story in tennis. Yeah. But, but like if, you know, if you wanted to, you could make it. Yeah. You could, you could do it. You could do it in an hour. You just have to be be really efficient in your storytelling. Yeah, <laughs> you have to start telling the story and seeing the things in the first in the first game, or in the warm up or something. Yeah, yeah. That like when a five setter is one sided, it's dreadful. I think that's you know it's like uh, when you watch Rafa or Novak like play early round matches against guys who they who can't really hang with them. I was, you know, I'm reminded of the Gasquet match, which, you know, Richard did manage to get a foothold and, like, make it competitive in the third. But, you know, two sets in, it's probably less than an hour. He's won a game. <laughs> you know, it's it's an awful experience to watch. You know, I mean, it's you can't predict it. I mean, that's what makes it so enjoyable in general. Like, when you catch something like that Sinner-Alcaraz match, where just, you know, from the moment, like, I think Alex, you know, texted us about it and was saying i maybe it was like a message to me like because i was behind on tape delays like you should come across this like the level's pretty insane already and that was in mm. the first set you know and it just like i think that's what made one of the reasons that match was so special was that they were both in it the whole time you know they it wasn't one of those matches where there's a dip or somebody's kind of saving energy for, to get through the set start again in the next one it was it was high level throughout and for a five-hour match that ends that late at night i mean that's that's some legendary kind of shit yeah what do you think do do you think uh do you think francis tfo will win a grand slam title well he said (laughs) seems like he's making it his personal mission to win the u.s open he is very motivated very focused he didn't give up he at all and um at the conclusion of the alcaraz match he said to the crowd uh, i'm sorry i let you down i'll be back and i will win this for you i promise i like that i like the boldness of it gonna be tough yeah so um you know how old is he 24 or something yeah he's only 24 it seems like he's been around forever which you know it it almost seems like he had been written off as like a real contender. And I guess the, you know, the thing with him is just that he needs to, he needs to stay at that level. And that's, that's always been kind of the problem is his, his consistency. Even in that Alcaraz match, even though Alcaraz had played two crazy long five setters, Alcaraz was clearly the fresher of the two. There was a long period where TFO just wasn't really with it. And then he fought back and got himself into it. But you know, maybe he can still get there. I mean, there have certainly been players who, you know, who make their breakthrough later in their careers. You know, we're just so unused to it on the men's side. Well, of anybody winning <laughs> besides a few people. So, you know, Rafa's time, Novak's time, they're going to come to a close too. And he'll be in his late 20s when that happens. So, totally. Got to think it's conceivable. Uh, I, know if it'll happen but i I hope so because i think he's 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 a star he's a delight to watch and you know 
he brings people into the sport and i think that's that's great we, i want more people winning yeah. like him like alcaraz yeah great like good personalities they play in the right way they're they're entertainers you know tiafu has a sense of humor like yeah. remember remember when we were watching him against seppi um mm -hmm. on court three at the australian open yeah in like a second round or something um I like I like to disrupt, you know, the, and I the um sort of this the parochial like going for one player. So I I yelled out like because uh, everyone was saying go Tiafu go Andreas. So I, I said good luck to both players. <laughs> That's right, I remember that. And Tiafu <laughs> looked around. He looked around and kind of like raised his eyebrows. He's like, what the fuck? Why? <laughs> <laughs> what? What's the, what? What is this? Um, and you know he does like the like that was nice. That, you know he's like showed expression in his face and interest, and um, he also does his LeBron James celebrations. Um, you know, so that I think that's gonna this kind of vibe is gonna be good. Yeah, so I, I support him. And it, he, if you think about it, he has seven or eight. If he stays healthy, maybe like eight eight more years of being at like his peak health yeah like peak athleticism yeah so he's gonna have like eight u.s opens i reckon he could win one of those and maybe like australian and australian open as well he could do well there yeah it, it's you know he's got that big match quality and he i think more to your earlier point he, he just he connects with crowds and like he plays best when there's a crowd with him and when he can engage with them and feed off their energy and give them energy and like build this momentum together. And, uh, seems like there, there's a real shot there and I hope, I hope he keeps it up. I hope he, he finds his way into the top 10, you know, makes himself like a real regular. I think that that's kind of the next step for him is to, to stay at that level. And, uh, and be always in the in the conversation because there's a lot of guys who you know you kind of th figure in that next tier of you know taking these championships once once Djokovic and Rafa stop eating them all up you know Medvedev and Zverev and Tsitsipas and Sinner and you know there's probably a few more on the way that we don't even know about yet so yeah hopefully hopefully he can he can stay in the convo that'd be good Casper Ruud Casper Ruud, yeah, the the finalist, the twice finalist this year, who uh, somehow I still overlook. And Matteo Berrettini is another one who I think, especially at Wimbledon, has has a great shot of doing it. You know, if he comes did in Cas in form. Yeah, did Casper Ruud also make the final, the COVID final against Team? No, he made the uh, no. His first Slam final was against Rafa at Roland Garros this year. Well, who yeah, was in that? Who was uh, who did team play in the COVID final? Yeah, he beat Zverev. All right. Yeah, in like one of the uglier five set matches you'll ever see. Like they were mm. both kind of falling to pieces. You know, it feels like we've written off team. You know, he's he's not looked very good. It certainly seems like he might never get that form back. But he was a guy who it looked like was going to compete especially on clay and, and hard courts was, was a real contender for a bunch of these. And at this point kind of hard to factor him in. 
team was recently playing a challenger against Gilles Simon. Yeah, I saw that. I, I thought Gilles Simon had retired. I think he's maybe retiring at the end of the year. Maybe Paris will be his swan song. Oh, maybe. Yeah, that that might that makes some sense. I saw that challenger because I was looking at tennis scores this week, and the men are mostly playing Davis Cup, and the women have there's a couple small like two fifties on the women's side. So a bunch of singles players who normally probably wouldn't play challengers were playing this particular challenger. It's like yeah, people just grinding away on the tour. People get, keep getting back out there. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz played today, which seems wild, and he lost to uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He must Kinda be makes... tired. <laughs> he must be tired. He said he was tired. <laughs> it's like, oh, boy, the the emotional high. I mean, that's that's also part of it, right? The fact that he got through so many tight matches and, like, to be able to, like, deal with the the, like, constant flow of adrenaline and its departure and then come back from it it's yeah it's pretty pretty wild stuff gonna gonna be interesting to watch him for the next 20 years <laughs> we'll, we'll be old men um, like come on carlos could you give somebody else a chance <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried putting on the tennis channel earlier this week you know hoping to uh find something to get excited about and i saw um uh what's her name canadian genie uh, bouchard. bouchard yeah playing in chennai i was like yeah she made the quarters man. she won a couple yeah. of main draw matches yeah that's she's actually quite young is she like how old is a, she now i think she's like 28 or 29 or something maybe she's had injury problems but it looks like she could still be a top player like maybe not a top 20 player, but maybe a top 50 player. Yeah. I mean, good for her for getting back out there. She was doing some commentary for the tennis channel earlier this year. Yeah, I thought she'd retired and um, become a tennis journalist. Yeah. And she was good at it too. So she seems like she'll be around. I mean, that's some real dedication to, you know, get out there, get out to Chennai and, uh, mm. and compete for a 250. So good on her. I hope I hope she plays better, gets herself back in the mix. That'd be pretty cool to see. Did you see Emma Raducanu like snuck into a two fifty tournament as the number one seed just after the US mm. Open because the rankings hadn't changed yet? Oh, I didn't realize that. And then she lost in the first round, right? No, no, she won against Yastrzemska. Oh, she did win a round. She she did yeah. lose though. She ended I up. Think yeah, she didn't kind of. Kind of one-sidedly, uh, yeah, to Anna Friedsam. The qualifier, who I think is in the semifinals now. That time. Huh. The Slovenia Open. Yeah, Raducanu is about to drop out of the top 70, I think. Yeah, she already has. Feels about right for where she has, yeah. She's 80-something now. Yeah, wow. Well, hopefully nowhere to go but up for for old, for old Emma. It's a... Uh, Wild career path she's had so far, so we shall see. You're probably gonna have to do more incantations, Matt, to like get the get the magic going again. I'm not sure I'm motivated. Yeah, I, I mean that's to, fair. Uh, to spiritually and magically root for Emma. <laughs> yeah, I mean you got to be feeling it. You got to be connected with the universe and 
I don't even yeah. do that for Richard Gasquet. I just sort of yeah. I don't even, even create spells for him. Yeah. So it's it's probably best that you you save your energy for for the ones that you really want to get behind. Like um. So I found I found him. His name is <laughs> the Japanese player. Yes, Toshihide Matsui. Okay. Um, Toshihide Matsui. Yeah, he is Never the um, he's the oldest active player on the ATP tour in singles. Hmm. Um, and he's still playing, especially doubles. Let's say that name again. Toshihide. Matsui. Can't find him. Toshi Ide Matsui. Okay, I got it. I watched his singles. 44 years old. Yeah. A little younger than me, yeah. 1684 in the world. In singles. Yeah. That's in singles, right. But what about in doubles? What about in doubles? Let's see here. 346. Yeah, so he's still doing well in doubles. He won the Japanese Championships in doubles in 2021. Huh. He, he won in 2005 and in 2021. Interesting. This year, on tour, he's won $3,655. And lifetime, he's made three hundred forty-three grand. Wow. So that's, for a 44-year-old man, I mean, I wonder how long he's been playing. Like has he has he been on tour for twenty years? I mean, ha- <laughs> yeah, he turned pro in two thousand. That's wild. And he has a one hand backhand. Oh man, we gotta find this guy. I mean, he probably doesn't even get into qualifying events <laughs> at majors. Oh no, he doesn't. No, yeah, I, I wonder if he's ever played a qualifier at a major. I don't think he's ever even done that. Um, He's he's made one challenger final in singles back in 2005. He lost to Ben Shelton recently. 6-1-6-2. Yeah, yeah, I saw some of that match as well. There's highlights of it. Mm. Ben Shelton wiped the, wiped the floor with him. <laughs> oh, man. But he tried. He tried hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what we appreciate here. Like a like we should have like a deep cut of the week. Yeah. Just like find somebody outside the top two hundred and like go on a deep dive. I mean if we put him in the uh in the album art for this episode and tag him, you know, there's a pretty good chance that he'll he'll see it. Yeah, you, know? you if if you were following like your social media, yeah, you Man, it's loss after loss. Like, I'm scrolling through. <laughs> it's really hard to find wins. The dedication. It's pretty impressive. I wonder what his best ever career win was. Like, if he's ever been a top 100 player. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, he's played Medvedev. He lost 6-2, 6-love. Yeah. yeah, at Shanghai in 2015. Second round of qualifying. Medvedev had to qualify. Maybe it must have been really young then. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have a feeling I'm going to be scrolling for a while here. <laughs> oh, check this out. You're going to love this. 
Matsui at one point, he played the Hong Kong Challenger in 2015, and he beat Tennis Sandgren, and then he beat Jordan Thompson. Wow. Before losing in the round of 16 to somebody named Niels Desain. Amazing. Okay, all right. Well, um. They were both ranked pretty low at the time. They must have been young. He must have been. He would have been a wily veteran. Yeah, in his 30s. Yeah, late 30s, actually. Well, sometimes you just got to catch these guys before they, they grow into their, you know, their eventual status. Yeah. I wonder if you'll play doubles, you know, like the crowd want to see him play uh, with Rafa probably at, um, at the Labor Cup in doubles. Yeah. Mm, yes, that's 100% going to happen. Yeah, that, that if nothing else, he will be on the court with Rafa in doubles. I'm wondering if he'll even get out there for singles, to be honest, given what they're saying about his knees. Um, yeah, that might be smart on his part. But everyone would like to see him play singles one last time. And you could treat it like an exhibition, like the world player he's going to play against. They could, they could like, fix it. At least to be like, I won't make you run too much, or I won't, like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, they're all kind of good players, you know? It's like, what do you have on the other, on the world team? It's like Schwartzman and TFO and, well, they have Jack Sock out there, clearly for doubles. Demonor. Uh, Taylor Fritz. Yeah, Demonor. Yeah, Demonor would be fun. I mean, you want somebody who's going to actually hit with him. I had this fear that, like, his last match would be against John Isner or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh God, can we see him at least play with the ball a little bit? You know, I was reminded of that like event in South Africa he did with Rafa, where you know it was just like the most exhibitiony exhibition of all time. I mean, I, I guess Labor Cup has some ATP points or something. It's not like a total exhibition. Like that, they are playing to win. They're not out there like just doing trick shots. But I feel like that would be that would be good enough. He's, Just see him wave his magic wand a bit, you know. He's bigger than the Labor Cup, right? Federer is like more important than Bjorn Borg or John McEnroe getting their team over the line. Yes, absolutely. So that means that it can be converted into somewhat of an exhibition tournament. When at least when Federer is playing. Yeah, they just, it, I don't know, I feel like the Labor Cup is a little confused about what it what it is or what it wants to be, you know, like, it seems like they want it to be this intense team competition, but it's hard to really care about it, <laughs> you know, like, oh, like, I'm on Team World, I guess, like, I can't even, even, I can't even get behind, like, a parochial group, really. I mean, I guess I can't, you know, Team World is like US, Australia, South America. I definitely want to take those Euros down. It's um, just the rest of the world. It's, it's the rest of the world, yeah. For the this intensely Eurocentric sport. Um, hmm. Well, not intensely. I mean, it, tennis is played around the world. It's just dominated by Europe. 
of late. Yeah. So. I if they had I reckon they should lean into the exhibition side of it. Because there's enough intense competition. And I reckon it should be men and women together. Because then you could oh. have Serena Williams playing doubles with Roger Federer or Yeah. Yep. Fully agree. The the old Hopman Cup was like that and it was a delight. It just nobody really knew that it existed outside of Australia, I think. Mm. Such a like an oddity on the calendar, but like that format was was kind of kind of cool, you know, team competition with both men and women. Now we have the Davis Cup and the ATP Cup and the Labor Cup. It's just like, like come on guys. Like did we not like do we not have enough? I mean, none of them really shine because there's just too damn many of them at this point. So, yeah, I'm, I'm for a full cross men and women's, you know, mixed competition. That'd be fun. But uh, I don't call the shots around here. No. Well, you do a little bit on the tennis tragedy. Yeah, that, I guess that's true. I'm not that. I'm not a domineering boss, though, am I? Oh, no. I don't even really think of you as my boss and more as my <laughs> team leader or something. Yeah. Yeah, the boss-employee relationship probably wouldn't work for you. You'd probably have to go on strike given what I'm paying at this point. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, look, this is the kind of going day rate for uh, social media evangelists and uh, podcast co-hosts. Come on. you know, We're going to unionize if you don't start, you know negotiating that's right yeah it's definitely in a good spot where we have where we treat it as a collective project for the love of the game yeah exactly we share all profits equally our profits are zero so the bookkeeping is rather straightforward uh, our profits are cultural cachet i think yeah that's right which is also quite limited well it's the uh the joy of the project the uh spirit of making something together about this thing we love that's that's what's shared that's that's what's shared yeah yes we can't we can we cannot even measure these riches <laughs> yep exactly it's priceless memories to last a lifetime the tennis tragic thanks you for listening all correspondence and feedback can be directed to tennistragicpod at gmail.com and our Instagram is at tennistragicpod. <laughs>